Hey, we have an amazing event coming up, the Expert Advantage Workshop Series, where every day for a week, starting on Monday, May 20th, it's myself and another expert coming on to present to you about various kinds of things to help you with your brand and your business. Our brand new experts and residents in pro are gonna be there to co-host these workshops with me, and you're not gonna wanna miss it. You'll have a chance to ask all of them questions, and it's completely free to join. All you have to do is go to smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. On Monday, May 20th, Amy Nelson's gonna come on, and we're gonna talk social media, but specifically how to drive revenue and connect with important stakeholders that matter to you in your business using social media. The next day, we have Noshin Chen, and she's gonna lead a presentation about how to become a better communicator, how to increase those skills faster, because that's gonna help you not just connect with new people, new clients, but also get your idea across better. Ton of takeaways in that presentation. And all you have to do to sign up and join and get all the links that you need is smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Again, one more time, smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Join us on our Expert Advantage workshop series. You're not gonna wanna miss it. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash advantage. Oh, hello, and welcome to the Community Experience Podcast. We are so glad you're here. If you're one of our regulars, you're probably wondering why we haven't published in a while. We actually chose to sunset the show in early 2023, but the feed will stay active because so many of the episodes are timeless. If you want to learn more and search our back catalog, you can visit smartpassiveincome.com slash cxpodcast, all one word. Community is great, but a community that embraces diversity can be something else altogether. In this conversation with Daniel Opong of the Courage Collective, you'll learn what centering is and how you can make the experience welcoming to a wider array of folks from different walks of life today on the Community Experience. All right, welcome to the Community Experience with myself, Jillian Benbow, and my partner in crime, Tony Bacigalupo. Hey, Tony. Hey, hey. Hello, hello. We have a super exciting, as always, episode today. We are talking to Daniel Opong of the Courage Collective, and we've had a lot of fun talking to Daniel, both as a team for a DEI training, but also this podcast. And I can't wait to talk to him more about just the ways to incorporate DEI in community. Yeah, it's incredible. The training that the Courage Collective has provided, Team SPI, has been so hugely educational, so valuable. Also knowing that everybody else on the team is learning the same stuff at the same time just creates such a great opportunity for conversation and for working towards you know making progress as an organization. I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, it's it's been so interesting, especially, you know, we're all on our own journeys with all things DEI, with anti-racism, you know, whatever it might be. But because we have this opportunity as a company to have these lead trainings, but then really see where, you know, meet each other where we are and have very vulnerable conversations about it. I've learned so much about just how other people, we're all learning. I, I learn something new every day. I got to check my privilege all the time and I'm more than happy to. And then when you're able to make adjustments so that what you are doing as a community leader is more welcoming to a wider range of folks, you're going to be attracting more people. You're going to be creating a more vibrant 
community and a more vibrant event. And that is just going to be good for everybody. It's just the right thing to do too. So Daniel's got some great tips for you on all of those fronts. We'll also be learning about uh, the wheel of power slash privilege, which is Tony's favorite like thing. One of, one of the most powerful images I've seen in a really long time. So we'll get into that and so much more. All right. Let's talk to Daniel Opong of the Courage Collective on the community experience. All right, and welcome back. I am so excited for our guest today. Tony, are you as excited as I, I am? I am so excited. You know, this is one of those conversations where before we even hit the record button, we already just kind of dove right in. So I'm glad that we're now, we're able to capture things from here on out. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, today we are talking to Daniel Pong. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here with you and Tony today. Yeah, we are just delighted. Why don't we start off? Why don't you give us your your story? How did you get into doing DEI work and how did the the Courage Collective start? Tell us tell us how it all began. Love it. Great question, super broad. I don't I mean I won't go all the way to the like birth, but one thing that is interesting is I'm the son of immigrant parents. My parents are from Ghana, West Africa, and that informs a lot of the way I show up in the world and in DEI work, right? Because my parents grew up in African culture, but then raised my siblings and I in American culture. And so just kind of being a third culture kid where I didn't totally relate to fully either culture. And so that's kind of where I think about my own story, where it begins. I went to school in Texas. So I I grew up in the Dallas area, went to Abilene Christian to play football originally, had a couple of knee injuries, which was a bummer. And it kind of set me on this path to just find myself. <laughs> I did nonprofit work first. So I did a mentoring program for college students, um, went to grad school at Gonzaga after a little while, studied organizational leadership. And then I moved to Nashville in 2015 uh, and I worked at a venture capital fund called Jumpstart Foundry. And so part of that experience was super interesting, right? And even as we think about DEI work, I worked at a company that was a venture capital fund that invested in health tech companies. And mind you, I had never worked in venture, never worked in healthcare, never worked in tech. So on paper, I had literally no business getting the job, but they took a risk on me, which kind of changed the trajectory of my career. So I did that for a few years, was talent director there. So people growth and strategy across all of our businesses, worked with portfolio companies, et cetera. Learned a lot about business. And then I went to work in tech at this employee experience company. I'd started another company before that focused on early career candidates, helping them find jobs. Went to work in tech. And, you know, I think last year was particularly illuminating for a lot of us, but I'm sitting here at this tech company and, you know, just the reality of 2020, the global pandemic, which we're still processing and grappling with the murder of George Floyd. And so I'm in this tech company and, and waiting for some type of response you know, I was one of a few black folks in my organization and it just was pretty quiet. (laughs) And so I wrote a letter to our CEO and chief people officer to kind of try to galvanize the action. And part of what I thought about is like, I'm waiting for change to come from people who may not share the same experience as me. I might be waiting a while. So I just need to create the change that I'm, that I'm desiring. So that led to the Courage Collective. You know, and another thing I'll say is like, when I looked at the public conversation around DEI, first of all, let's just acknowledge we live in a very polarized society where things are pretty binary and split. And I'm like, I want to have a conversation that centers on courage and empathy 
and create DEI brand or approach that, that highlights those two things. So that was kind of the genesis of Courage Collective. And so we're actually, tomorrow is the one year since we did our first learning series session. And since then we've worked with 15 companies, done 75 sessions. It's, it's been pretty meaningful. And SBR has been a fun part of the journey. So really enjoying working with you all as well. So that, that's kind of in a snapshot or in a nutshell, what got us here. That's amazing. And you have a, a just a wonderful team for everyone listening. You know, we get on these calls and Daniel has several teammates and they all kind of take different different parts of the training and usually have relevant experience to talk about with it. How did you find all of these people? Funny question. Because how I did they find my, you? <laughs> yeah, I think part of my magic in life is I just collect my favorite people. Right. Like, and I think one of the things that I've said for myself, as far as what I want professionally and out of my career is like, I want to create a life I love and I want to build things I believe in with people I enjoy. And if I do both of those things, then I'll have lived a good life. And so with the Curse Collective, you know, I, I can look back and think about all the different folks that are part of it. Some of them I met professionally. One of them is my sister and then her old roommate. And then some people I met at my last tech company and then just people that I've connected with along the way. But I think that the through line is, Everyone is committed to the process of growth and evolution, self-reflection, trying to think about how we're showing up in the world and doing so more intentionally. And so we actually got together not too long ago um, for my birthday weekend. And just so nice to share space with people who are on a similar frequency, who care a lot about the world, who care a lot about having an impact and making positive change. And so just a really great group. I mean, I think I'm probably a bit biased, but some of my favorite people I get to work with, so... That's awesome. I mean, I have FOMO. I'm like, I want to hang yeah. out with you. You can come next time if you want. You're invited. I'll just invite myself. There you go. <laughs> I'll bring something, whatever. Yeah, that's great. DEI, I feel like it's kind of it's kind of in buzzword territory at this point. Like it's it's super important. And I don't want to discount that or cheapen the term at all. I also think a lot of people, it's it's it can be performative in many ways. Um, like whether it's companies or whatnot, it's like, oh yeah, we care about DEI. Look, we updated our mission statement. And then that's about it, right? It's really interesting to be on a team right now where professionally we're going through your the training you've created and we're also having discussions. And it, it's very it's very important to us as a company individually. So it's, it's really fantastic um, to see the conversations coming out of it. What are your thoughts about the other companies out there or, you know, groups that are kind of doing the performative side where they're saying, oh yeah, look at us, we did this, but they're not actually implementing. Like for anybody listening that might be in that situation, like what can they do to kind of make it more real? DEI is a multi-million or billion dollar industry, right? Like I, I think about the reality of what it is versus what is the impact. And so I think last year, one of the things that we did see is a lot of companies trying to get into the space and figure out how can we have a point of view that's not controversial, but also inclusive. And so they would share these things that are like unintelligible. Like, are you talking about a natural disaster? Or are you talking about like human experience, right? And so I think for me, when I look at the ways in which companies engage and like what aligns and hits the mark versus maybe what doesn't, I think there are a couple of things that I would say. Most companies often focus on talent acquisition or like training as the baseline for their DEI work. And I think while those things have value, it's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like I think that 
the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is much more holistic. And so we want to think about pre-employment, during employment, post-employment, like every single one of those phases of the employee journey is relevant to DEI work. And then I think there's some companies who want to do it maybe more for optics. And so, you know, they'll post a thing, but then if you were to ask the underrepresented identity groups, how do you experience work at this organization? Like, do you even like it there? Do they like you there? Right? Like, I think that would be a different conversation. And so there's the external versus the internal. I think the internal and even kind of sustainability as far as that work goes, so much more important. And I think the last thing I'd say is because it is a space where companies will try and maybe put a tiny bit of resources behind it and be like, well, we tried, but it didn't work. I'm like, okay, what do you do just once that actually has efficacy and effectiveness, right? Like, and are you bringing in the experts to help kind of guide and facilitate that discussion? We've seen some companies will throw barely any resources. They'll do one unconscious bias training and be like, well, DEI didn't work at our company and people didn't like it. Like, okay, well, like, let's think about a more holistic and robust strategy. That's probably what I would recommend um, for staying power. But again, I think some companies, like you said, would rather do it for optics than actual like impact and transformation. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see as time goes on the churn, the retention in those companies. Like sometimes you just got to work where you got to work. Right. And it's a survival thing. I'm hopeful that over time, the companies that actually care and are, are authentically trying and, and as kind of what you were alluding to a little bit, but like actually talking to their employees about their experience and how it can be better. Hopefully the companies vested in that will attract the talent that aligns as well, you know, and vice versa. So the, the companies that maybe aren't. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point because if we think about Right now, the great resignation, right? Like you think about how many people are leaving their jobs. And so I think there's a recognition. People are recognizing their power and optionality. Like we spend between 90,000 to 100,000 hours of our lives at work. And that's a really long time, (laughs) right? And so if you think about that, am I giving my energy, if I'm an employee, am I giving my energy to a place that's also giving me energy and showing me care and support, right? And if the answer is no, I think what we're seeing, especially through the pandemic and the reality of everything that we're living through right now, like I have a choice. I don't have to work at a place that doesn't value what I bring to the table or who I am. And I can, especially if I'm part of an underrepresented group, companies are in a way clamoring for that type of talent. So I think that there's an interesting inflection and opportunity point. So to your earlier point, like we'll see what the retention looks like, but there's certainly some optionality that's happening right now. Well, and then back to your point, it's like ping pong, point, ping pong. So let's do it. <laughs> Point ping pong. But back to your point of the great resignation. I mean, we do live in a time that's like you have a lot of agency and support if you want it to go out on your own and to build what you want to see in the world. And that to me, um, and and I think the pandemic has really helped accelerate this idea that we all knew we were disposable in the big companies and whatnot. Like we know, but it was, it became quite apparent and we had the opportunity and so many people took it and are creating things that are for people like them that maybe don't have that representation. And we just interviewed a wonderful woman, Kelly, who runs the Badass Lady Gang. And it's a, a running club for people who don't identify as runners, but she, you know, she found a way to say, you know what, like running like this should be fun first and fitness second. That's what works for me. And she has this whole community and 
I think that could be, you know, played out in professional realms as well. I mean, obviously it's her job. It's her whole thing, but like she can create a company that's on her terms. Let's shift to, because I think, I think work culture is very much a community. Sometimes it's a community you don't want to be in, <laughs> but you have to be. But, you know, as our work in community building and community leadership and advocacy, I think there's a huge opportunity for us to to have DEI in the forefront of our minds as we're creating these communities and creating very inclusive and safe community. And I'm curious your thoughts on, as a community builder, what are things we should kind of be thinking about that maybe we don't realize? At the Courage Collective, we use a quote often by this woman, Dr. Crystal Jones, and she says that there's a big difference between the ideas, all are welcome here, and this was created with you in mind. The latter of which is much more impactful and resonant, right? And so I think about that difference and we think about the idea of community building. Who was the community created for? Who feels like they can show up authentically? And I think one of the things that we have to name is community looks, feels, and is experienced differently by different people. And so even the three of us on this call right now, what community means to me and where I feel a sense of presence in community might be different than what it means for y'all. But is there a through line that we can share? And so when I think about the things that bring people together, let's take the Courage Collective, for example. All of us come from different backgrounds. All of us have different points of view, different experiences that inform how we show up in the world. But there's a shared set of values and even norms that we orient around. So when I think about community building, I'm like, okay, well, what are the things that bring you all together? Yeah, it could mean and be expressed differently by different people. But what are these core ideas that bring you together? And is there space for that to look different? So for example, if I say courage, that's one of the things that we gather around. What courage means to me might be different than one of my colleagues. But what's more salient is that it's a value that we share and we're committed to expressing that in our lives. I think what we see oftentimes within communities is like it's only gathered around a certain couple of things that you agree upon and that everyone else is the other. And what I would say is like, what does it look like to create inclusive communities that are centered around a collection of values that could be expressed all kinds of different ways? And I think in this particular climate, just the binary and polarizing nature of things, it feels hard to look at that nuance. Oh, we can value the same thing, but express it differently. Oh, like that's a novel idea for so many folks, right? And so that's one of the things that I would suggest um, is just starting with what are the, the core set of things that you share? Are you okay with those things being expressed differently? And are you creating your community and culture with unique identities in mind? Or is there one centered group, one particular group that the community is oriented or designed for? So those are a few initial thoughts I, I have. Can you talk more about the centering? Because I think it's something that is ripe territory for people who are well-meaning, but maybe able to be educated in a way that kind of empowers them better. You know, that there are probably a lot of folks that are engaging in centering without realizing they're doing it. I think centering, maybe simply put, it's to make someone's feelings, values, identities, or norms the center or the focal point. And basically when something or someone is centered, everything else orients around it. So let's give a couple of practical examples. So when we think about the holiday calendar, for example, and this is one that's relevant for workplaces, most businesses celebrate holidays that are commensurate with the Christian holiday count. Not good or bad. It's just the way that it is right now. And so if I am someone who doesn't identify as Christian and I have different holiday traditions, 
chances are I'll probably have to take PTO to celebrate my holiday. Whereas if I identified as such, it would be a holiday that's given to everyone. So it's a super small and subtle example, but pretty salient. So like I was, I was in a call and talking with a gentleman whose faith tradition is Jewish. And for him, he was like, yeah, I have to take a couple of days at PTO to celebrate this holiday with my family. So that's a really practical example of centering. But if we span out from there, let's think about makeup color options, Band-Aid options. Like when we say nude colored Band-Aids, nude for who, right? Or like skin colored Band-Aids for who? So who are the identities that are centered? When we think about being able-bodied, right? And so you go into certain workplaces. If you're able-bodied, you can get around relatively easily as opposed to if you're disabled or you have a wheelchair, for example, are you able to have the same level of accessibility? So when we think about that as it relates to communities, the question would be, what are the identities that are centered here? And what are we orienting every single thing that we're doing here around? And then who then by proxy is pushed to the fringes or not welcome? It's not created with them in mind. And so as a byproduct, they're not feeling that sense of belonging that we would want. And so Centering is a really, it's a simple but profound concept if you really dig into it, just to think about how it shows up at work, in our lives, in our communities, et cetera. And it seems like such a ripe space for opportunity just to, you know, once you're noticing it, questioning it, especially if you're a community organizer, if you're running an event, especially if you're running, you know, an event where you're trying to attract a large number of people or a large cross-section of people, that's the takeaway I get is just such an opportunity. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think I want to acknowledge that communities are often organized around a shared set of something, whether it's identities, values, pursuits, et cetera. And so that inherently has a self-selection element to it, right? So if you have a community for entrepreneurs, if someone doesn't think of themselves as entrepreneurial, maybe they won't pursue the community. But within that subset of things that people have said, like, yeah, I identify as whatever it might be, and I'm a part of this community, that, again, looks very different based upon what the experiences are that people have, the historical context, et cetera. So to your point, it's a major opportunity to say, like, how can we make this accessible to the people that have said, like, I want to be a part here? And also, how can we make it sticky? So I think those are things for sure, major opportunity for, for community and growth. And just kind of go, going a bit further into it, can you talk about that favorite graphic of mine from the training, the wheel of power slash privilege? Yeah, I think it, it's really interesting. Privilege is a concept that people would often bristle at. And I think in the public discourse, there's a lot of reticence maybe to acknowledge what that means. The wheel you're referring to is the wheel of power and privilege. And it just talks about based upon the different individual identity categories that we hold. Certain ones come with a level of power and privilege, whereas others may not. So I'll give a personal example for me. As a man, I have a certain level of privilege inside, right? And when I say privilege, it's things that are unearned advantage. And so one of the things that we would look at is like, let's take the gender pay gap, for example. Historically, men make more money than women. And again, we're just talking about the binaries, although I know the identity is a spectrum. So I want to name that. But in this particular area, we look at that and we're like, okay, as a man, I have a certain level of privilege. And also I'm a black man. And so the first thing that you see when you see me isn't my background, my education, how much money I make, what kind of, none of that stuff matters. What you see is me as a black man. And so I think that when we look at power and privilege in certain spheres or certain areas, 
based upon how I identify, I have a level of power, but then also certain things I might be further from the center and the center being the things in society that are prioritized or valued, invested in. And I think everyone has a collection of those characteristics. So maybe you have higher socioeconomic status and also a disability. We have to think about intersectionality here, right? So it's not, we don't, our identity doesn't exist in a vacuum. We're intersected by a collection of different identity categories. So when we think about that, how does that show up and which ones give you advantages, which ones maybe are less supported or invested in in society and who is impacted by that? So those are a few questions that I would highlight. And so when we're thinking about our own identities, what are the ones that give you power and privilege versus what are some of the ones that may put you out of the centered group? Those are just things to consider. And in that dial, there are a bunch of them <laughs> and ones that I was very familiar with and ones that I was a little bit less familiar with or kind of tangentially familiar with. Uh, and just kind of going around the dial for the listeners, uh, we have citizenship, skin color, formal education, ability, sexuality, neurodiversity, mental health, body size, housing, wealth, language, and gender. I feel like we could do whole workshops just on like how to redesign your event or your company or your onboarding process or whatever, just around these. And like really just starting with the low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's a great point. I think one of the simple ways that I would highlight that is like the question, who sees themselves in your story? Do I see myself in the story of the event that you designed, the community that you designed, the program that you designed, the website that you designed? Do I see myself in the story? Like, could I be a character there or no? And so to your point, Tony, I mean, I think with all of the things that are putting into the world, we do those things with certain people in mind and who's included and who's left out. Those are all things that I think are particularly important to consider. And just a question, I guess, as we look at those things and we think about how we can make adjustments, how we can do better, I just wonder what kind of guidance you might have to offer for folks who are, you know, thinking about how to approach this. You know, and I try to do my own research and I try to do my own outreach and not put that labor on somebody else. Maybe can you help me get, get a better handle on how to approach that in the best way? I would start with just acknowledging that growth looks different for everyone and everyone has room to grow. Like no matter how long you've been doing the work, no matter how long, whether you're a novice or you're a, an aficionado, whatever it might be, anywhere on that spectrum, we all have room to grow. And I think committing to the process of learning and unlearning. I mean, I think that's just fundamental to the human experience. And yeah, I think about, there's a quote that I like that's something along the lines of, in times of change, the learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. And so when I think about that specifically, I'm like, I want to be someone who's continuing to learn and evolve and, and kind of challenge my own assumptions, perceptions, and, and do that level of self-inquiry. So I think if, if the fundamental catalyst is like, I want to continue that learning and growth. And I think another thing I would say is like empathy being central to that journey. I think whenever we're trying to do this work and thinking about it in the context of community, it's easy to feel shame and judgment. So shame about what you have or haven't done, shame about what you do and don't have, shame about where you come from or don't come from, and then judgment towards others who may or may not be where you want them to be. And so those two things, I think, have kind of a debilitating effect on this work. And so grounding it in empathy, grounding it in courage. And to your point, like, yeah, what is it that you can do? We maybe can't do everything, but I can do something. I can, like you said, instead of burdening something at someone else, maybe I'll start and do my own research. Maybe I will have conversations with people that are directly in my community. Maybe, I mean, when we think about <laughs> the ubiquitous nature of information, 
we are consuming so much information all the time. And what if we were just more intentional about some of the channels that we drew inside and information from? There's so many different things that you could go down there. But I think once you acknowledge we all have room to grow and learn, we kind of ground that in courage and empathy in a way that supersedes shame and judgment. And then we like are intentional about our own pursuits of that process. And, and I think to your point earlier, doing it in community, it goes a long way. Yeah, I feel like being able to release that shame is huge because in some way, a lot of us are going to feel that and or be tempted to feel that or even just some sense of embarrassment. One of the things I've loved about what we've done in your sessions is just really felt like we've been getting educated while also feeling safe. And then that gives us a place to kind of step out and maybe get a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more honest about what's going on for us and highly recommend it. Awesome. I appreciate that. I think empathy is just a much more sustainable catalyst than shame, right? And so if we can ground some of that in empathy, I think it just goes a long way. It's just a more effective strategy, right? Like if somebody gets put on the defensive, then they're going to dig in their heels. And, you know, so if you, if you can avoid triggering somebody's defenses, then you're going to have a much better chance of being able to Uh, have them be receptive to something new. On the flip side of that, I think something we see, especially in digital communities, I think digital, you know, internet conversations, it's a lot easier for people to say things they wouldn't say to someone's face. But I think there's something, you know, something I'd like to talk about a little bit is just for those digital communities where you do have a higher risk of people kind of going off and saying things and and maybe being a little more adventurous with what they're saying, you know, behind their keyboard as a community manager, as a community leader, when those things happen, it seems like a lot of the times those people are coming from that, that place of fear. They're not coming from empathy. They feel scared. Thankfully, you know, a paid entrepreneurial community that I run now, there's not a lot of fighting. It's quite refreshing, but I've, I've certainly managed other communities where fighting was just a huge part of it. And having like de-escalation strategies was a, was a big thing. You know, we all have to meet people where they are and we have to lead by example with empathy and openness and kindness. But sometimes you just get one person who will not listen and they're angry and they feel their rights are being violated. And, you know, they're just in this chaotic tailspin. <laughs> so do you have a magic wand? Do you have any sort of I would wave advice? it on society right now. Like, I would wave that <laughs> Abracadabra. Right. Be nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great, it's a great question and, and great thought. And I mean, I think, frankly, it's just part of the human experience, right? Just the complexities of that. And I think it'd be naive to pretend that discourse and even disagreement and some of those challenges aren't. When you bring in people who have wildly different beliefs and experiences, et cetera, like that's just part of what happens. A few things that we try to do on our end is we always try to set like, what are the norms? So let's say either community norms or ways of working that we are agreeing to and and not just like the terms and conditions that no one reads and clicks accept, <laughs> right? But like, what are the norms that we're all orienting to as a community? And, and basically that informing how we want to treat one another. So I think one, that has to be established. Two, it has to be modeled, right? And so I think that like, once we establish our way of being that we want to like, How are we modeling it and reinforcing the behavior that we do want to see and celebrating that? And I think as that becomes like that permeates the group and the consciousness, it becomes very apparent when someone isn't aligned to 
what's happening there. And I think once people have agreed to a set of norms, then to me, it's more about accountability. This is what we said, how we want to come into the space. And also the behaviors that are being exhibited don't align. So like, help me understand what's happening. I think curiosity is a great tool because I think sometimes beyond the um, (laughs) raging that people do, there's just pain and sadness and fear, exactly like you said. And so I think getting curious about like what's actually happening beyond the defense mechanisms, beyond the defensiveness, all of that, what's actually happening under the surface and, and creating space for someone to share that. At the end of the day, as a community manager, you're responsible for the experience that people have when they come into your space, right? Like that's part of why you're in the seat. So I would say, what are the norms? Are they being modeled? Are they being re- reinforced? And then if someone is behaving in a way that doesn't align with the norms, How can you, one, hold up a mirror? Hey, this is what you agreed to. And these behaviors are being exhibited. So help me understand what's happening. And then is there a meaningful path forward? I mean, think about this as in the context of performance reviews sometimes. This is what is expected as it relates to your seat in this company. Here's what's happening. There's dissonance. Let's talk about it. And I think that part of it could be maybe there's a meaningful path forward where they see that they want to change and evolve. And then maybe there's not. And I think that part of that is like when you can hold up just what people have agreed to and then also what are the behaviors that are being exhibited, then you can have a more honest conversation about it as opposed to it's coded in subjective language and my own perceptions and biases. I, that's why I think curiosity is huge. If I, I can tell you about you or I can ask you about you. So, so Tony, tell me what's going on or Jillian, tell me, you know, what's going on. This is how I've observed it, but I don't need to interpret that and make that absolute truth. I can invite you into a dialogue about that. The last thing I'll say is sometimes that just takes a heck of a lot of energy. And so to your point, like when you're managing a community of hundreds, thousands, global community, like you have to be honest about your own capacity and does the situation feel like there's space for repair or no. And I think giving yourself the grace to make that decision and feel empowered to make a decision in what's best in the best interest of your community as well. It's so interesting you said that because I was recently working with someone who has a community and that's part of their greater business. They're not like me where it's like, this is my profession. One of my favorite parts of my job is I get to help a lot of business owners who have launched communities do stuff, you know, that I'm like, oh, this is my wheelhouse. I feel like I can contribute. But yeah, they had a disruptive person in their community. It was almost... I mean, I told them, I was like, you can remove them. It's your community. If if you've warned them and they're still, and it's it's creating a problem in your greater community, it's okay. And it was almost just like that permission to be like, yeah, it's my community. They're being disruptive. They don't listen to feedback. Like we've been through it. And it is funny because I think a lot of people, we want resolution. And so we will make ourselves miserable and sometimes even make situations worse because we're fighting so hard to get everyone to agree, get along. And there, there's a point, there's a line in the sand where it's like, for the health of your greater community, you need to boot somebody <laughs> or whatever it is. And, and it's okay. It's okay. Because stepping back, it's the grand scheme of like, what's the purpose of this community? And is this thing that keeps happening? is it ruining that? Which often, sadly, one person can do, you know? Yeah. I think sometimes it feels like people hold on longer because it feels like it's a reflection on them and their ability or inability. And I'm like, everyone has their own choices to make, right? Like, and people, the way that you show up in a space and it's largely up to you, like you have efficacy in that. Right. And so thinking about the community manager's role, it's not to 
try to superimpose or change someone's behavior. Like that's not why you're there. You're creating an experience for a collective and that's your responsibility, right? And an opportunity, even beyond responsibilities, an opportunity in the same way that we wanted to create a meaningful, intentional space for y'all as we've done these sessions, like that's where our attention and focus is. And I think the community managers can do the same thing. Absolutely. And something you do, I wanted to mention, uh, you know, in those, those get togethers, those training sessions we have at the, Tony was alluding to this earlier, but at the top of the the meeting, there's, you know, you share your screen and there's, you reinforce like, this is a safe space. Like it's okay to be vulnerable. We're not here to judge each other. There are guidelines outlined and that I think it's really important for any community leader or organizer, you know, whatever you're working in to do that, to set the, set the attention, set the tone and just kind of really reinforce what kind of space it is and what the expectations are. And then it allows people to meet each other where they are, but with a sense of respect that maybe otherwise wouldn't be top of mind, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it says an intention for the group, but then it also gives you something to hold people accountable to. And if you never put that in front of them, then they don't know how they're supposed to behave. And so how do they know if they're not behaving in a way that's aligned? So yeah, multifaceted there for sure. Yeah. Well, and there's so many spaces that people interact online specifically. Like you might join one community and think you act the same way you would on Facebook or in a you know social media or whatever, or like even Reddit. I'm always talking about Reddit because I love Reddit. It's kind of like check the room before you before you interact. And I, I'm not sure everybody does that. That digital communities are still new enough and so much spun off of social media that um a lot of people are still figuring out how to interact in those spaces. So the more we as community leaders can, like you said, model the behavior, but also just put it out there. Like it's on the wall. This is what we do here. You're so welcome. But if it's not for you, I bet you there's a hundred other communities that are similar that might be more your style. Yeah, that's what I've had to accept. And and I think when you're just relating to people from all different walks of life and backgrounds, like while the community is available to everyone, it's not for everyone. And that's okay. That's a tension that I can accept. And I want to show up in a way that feels authentic. And I also understand that certain things resonate with differently with different people. Like there's a reason why there are a bazillion flavors of ice cream, because not everyone likes chocolate chip cookie dough. And I think that's the same with communities as well, right? So thinking about it's okay if it's not for everyone, there's probably something out there for them and we don't have to hold on to them out of fear. What if you just continue to curate and be intentional about what are the values, what are the norms and how do we organize people around that? Absolutely. And I think there's a slippery slope with trying to create a community that is for everybody, kumbaya kind of situation, because it those are the ones that often have a lot of fighting, right? Because you're bringing a lot of different people in. But there's also on the flip side of that, there's a fine line between having a, like a inclusive community that turns exclusive in a way. And I do think there are some spaces that maybe we, not all of us belong and that's okay, but it can get real dangerous real fast because all of a sudden that can turn into some like a hate group, right? <laughs> and so there's, I don't know. I mean, we've just got a few minutes, but just do you have any like insider ideas for people who are trying to figure that out? Like they want to have it niched to a certain level, but then it's like dancing the line of you want to be inclusive without being exclusive, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think about it through the lens kind of of entrepreneurship. And so like, who is your customer and what is your value proposition to that customer? And 
I think if you've created something of value for your constituent or for your customer, it'll resonate with that. And if you haven't, then it won't, right? And so I think, what is the core value of your community? For me, I, I would probably hone in more on what are you creating and who are you creating it for? And then who are some of the additional beneficiaries or people who could participate in that, right? And so, and understanding, again, when we organize around values, values can be expressed in a number of different ways and look very different depending on the person. And so I would go back to like, let's think about the core essence here. What is it that we're trying to do and bring together? Who are we creating this with like in mind? And then what are some of the norms that we're organizing around? I think, again, when you're clear on your value proposition and even your vision and mission and even customer, it, it really does have a self-selection agency. Like I respect people who are in the equestrian community, but I am not getting on a horse, right? Like, so, so to each their own. And so I think it's, it's, there are things like that, that you can have value for, but not also participate in. And when the value proposition is clear, I think people can say like, I'm interested in that and I want to try it out. And maybe it's for me, maybe it's not. So. You picked that real quick. Like, is there a story there about trying to like, no, horses? I guess I started something. I'm like, oh, what do I not? I could probably skiing too. Like, I'm like, what do I, what do I not do that people like, are hardcore about, right? <laughs> and so like some people like skiing or riding horses. So I support you, do your thing, live your best life. I will not be there. You can send me pictures, but I will not be there. <laughs> I will say if you ever decide you want to try skiing or you just want to come to the apres afterwards and have like a cocktail, you're more than welcome. Yeah, you you can enjoy the mountain on your own terms. I promise you, you don't have to actually ski. I think my, I have like, had two knee injuries. And so I'm like, there's no double diamond black that's worth another nine months of reconstruction. <laughs> I think that's a good, a good place to kind of wrap it. So we do a, a rapid fire questioning that I, did I give you a heads up on this? I don't think so, but I'm with it. I don't think so. Surprise. Don't worry. There's no wrong answers. It's, it's all fun. So Daniel, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Athlete. No question. And you did it. Kind of. I played sports in college a little bit, but I, like I said, I had a couple knee injuries. And so pretty anticlimactic sports career, if I'm honest, but I still love the game. So I want to be an athlete. No question. I ne that never crossed my mind as a child. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How do you define community? How do I define community? I would say interconnectedness, being seen, feeling known. Okay. So think about your bucket list. And is there anything on your bucket list that you have done? I went to Europe maybe a couple of years back, which was a lot of fun. I had planned pre-COVID um, that were largely disrupted. But yeah, I'd say I'd take continued travel is always the list for me. Yeah. Where'd you go in Europe? I went to London and Amsterdam. Ooh, fun. I love London so much. I haven't been to Amsterdam. Yeah. Great cities, but. Yeah, I could live in London for a little while, maybe someday. Retirement goals. I give you that. Okay, and then yeah, on the flip side, uh, what's something that's on your bucket list that you have not done, but that you want to? Tough to say right now. I'm kind of like an experienced seeker, right? And so I think it kind of just depends on where I am. I don't have anything off the top of my head on my bucket list that I haven't done because I'm kind of just putting some intention. I, I, I do have, I mean, travel's, probably pretty general and vague, but that's probably top of mind for me because I have a few things that I want to do as far as that's concerned. And I had to cancel a couple of trips last year. So I like it. Your whole bucket is travel. You have a travel yeah, bucket. Right now it is. I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's great though. 
travel is the best. Okay. Is there a book that you've recently read or are reading that you just think is amazing and you think everyone should read? I loved Between the World and Me by ta Coates. He basically, it's almost memoir-esque, but he writes a letter to his son, essentially, just through the lens of the Black experience. So I thought that was a pretty powerful book. Liked that one a lot. Think Again by Adam Grant is also a pretty good book, kind of about challenging our assumptions points of view. Big fan of Brene Brown's work as well. So anything by her. And then Glennon Doyle's book, fan of that one as well. So I have a collection. I'm, I'm currently reading Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed. And so it kind of looks at the history of the Black experience in America. So Those all sound great. Courage Collective should start a book club. <laughs> Maybe we should. Yeah. I can send you. We have a whole resource guide, so I can send you some of the information about it. Oh, totally. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm always looking for good books. If you could live anywhere else in the world, and this will be interesting because you love to travel, but if you could live anywhere else in the world besides where you live now, where would that be? I love Vancouver, BC. Favorite city of mine. Really love London when I went. Where else? I, I think part of it is I would have to have experiences. I've never been to Australia, and so I'm super interested in, in there. And yeah, part of the reason I have this flexible lease thing to this company called Landing, and so it allows it to live in any city for however long. And so I'm home base is probably, I mean, I, I spend a decent chunk of time in Nashville, but kind of just pop around periodically. I'm in Seattle today. That's really cool. Yeah. So it's a pretty good setup. Nice. That's very cool. Okay. Final question. Daniel, how do you want to be remembered? I think I would go back to the, the statement that I said earlier. If the people that I'm with and that I spend my energy on would say that I created a life I loved and together we built things we believed in, or I built things I believed in with people I enjoyed that impacted and moved the world. That's how I want. And just as someone who like who cared. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciated having you on and I look forward to the continued work we do with Team SPI. Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, so easiest place. So the couragecollective.co. So that's our website. You can also find us on LinkedIn. So those are probably the two primary places. Yeah, that's where I would start. Alrighty. Thanks so much. All right. So our conversation with Daniel from the Courage Collective, really, really valuable, so useful, so helpful uh, in terms of us being able to build communities uh, for the future. Yeah. I mean, Daniel's just so fun to talk to. He just has a wealth of information and I love everything his his team is doing. It's just so cool. Definitely check them out, the Courage Collective on the interwebs. Well, my mind was blown by the just this uh, succinctness and the language of the difference between all are welcome here versus this was created with you in mind. I just feel like I could chew on that sentence for hours and thinking, you know, just thinking in terms of when you're creating something, it's really easy to say everybody's welcome here. You know, you can buy a sticker that says it and throw it uh, that language on your site. If you're aspiring to this was created with you in mind, it flips things over and shows that there's intent. It shows that you have actually thought about who all is and the ways that different people might have different needs or different uh, desires or different uh, ways of interacting. And so I just, I love that. I love, I, I love uh, thinking in terms of aspiring to have my events and my communities 
be more of that latter thing. Yeah, I want to get it tattooed on my forehead. It's just the perfect way to think when you're building community, when you're trying to create events, especially, you know, if you if you feel like, oh, this isn't maybe it's not working the way you expected, like really to audit and take a step back outside of your own personal experience lens. Exactly. Exactly. Which leads to the centering, which I think is so valuable to be aware of, is just to ask yourself, in what way am I centering a identity, a piece of that wheel that I might not be realizing? Yeah, absolutely. We talk a lot. If you follow Pat Flynn, you know, his one of his sayings is the riches are in the niches. But there's definitely, there's a fine line between niching down to the point of being like exclusive kind of in a bad way versus niching down, but having, so having like a a strong focus, but also being very inclusive and safe. And I think a lot of us in the kind of like white, straight, cis, you know, heteronormative, whatever term you want to use, it's very easy for us in particular to forget that not everybody just feels safe in the system or the, you know, the ways that seem normal to us. And so it's really important to talk to your community and to ensure if you have members who maybe aren't being as engaged as you thought, just to check in and make sure they feel safe. Like that's a huge part. If, if people don't feel safe, they're not going to interact. They might not hang out. They might not stick around. And so creating a place where people feel safe, and they know what to do when they don't. They know who to talk to. They know what actions they can take if they're feeling unsafe is is just such a like huge part of community management and a reason why we have guidelines and policies in place. This is a really great conversation we had with Daniel about kind of the bigger picture of this. But just as as all as community managers out there know, like this is this is why we have community guidelines. Absolutely. And you brought up an important takeaway, which is talk to people, be proactive about involving people who have perspective that you don't. I know that you just for example, when I was putting up the site for the audience driven summit, I had posted in SPI Pro privately to people to get their feedback. And one person commented about how there was one section that was actually very hard to read for folks who were colorblind or had issues with contrast. And so I was able to fix that piece of the site before we blasted out an email to hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, that would probably hopefully made for a slightly better experience for folks. So, you know, those kinds of things, I think, you know, just involving people early on proactively lays a foundation for creating a, a much more inclusive experience for everybody, you know, from then on. Absolutely. And that that kind of takes us to the point, like when you do get feedback, when there is criticism, maybe about something you've built or something you've said, it is so important to lead with empathy. And it's so important to be curious and to learn more and understand where something's, someone's coming from, especially if whatever they say kind of immediately gets your defenses up. Like if, you know, you start getting that like sense where you're like, oh, they're going to go here, wherever here is. That's community. (laughs) You know, it's, it's not the destination, it's the journey. And so every step along the way that you can do it in a way that is kind of a loving, we're all in this together, certainly boot the trolls, boot the people that are, there to stir trouble. I'm not saying 
like try to make harmony with chaos or with toxicity have very clear guidelines that you can use, but always come from a place of kindness and empathy. It's something that I think is so, so important right now, right? We know that we are just going through this massive crisis as a society where there is all this divisiveness, all this toxicity. But what you will see is that two people who might be hurling internet insult bombs at each other on the internet can be perfectly amicable in the right context in a community setting. I think that starts to weave the fabric that we need to be able to kind of wake up a little bit and get off of the internet and stop flaming each other so hard. Totally. You just got to hit them over the head with kindness. (laughs) 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 And I want to just recognize like Tony and I are both like white people, white straight people, I think, I don't, I guess I've never asked Tony, but you know, we we haven't discussed it, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just generalizing. So, you know, if, if you identify differently than us and you're like, uh, so you're telling me I should just take, you know, patriarchal or like white supremacy and, and just roll with it and be kind, not saying that at all. And please, please don't, um, please don't ever think that either one of us want anyone to be in an unsafe situation. That can be a swift kick out the door yeah. to somebody. Yeah. But you can do it kindly. You know, you don't have to cuss them out first. Exactly. You can be kind e- even as you are defending the values of your community and, and modeling certain behaviors. So yes, they they're they're together. Absolutely. And if you are someone, you know, like myself, tons of white privilege you can use your voice to help keep it safe for people who might be getting comments and behaviors that are unacceptable that maybe they wouldn't do to you. So you can always be a true, you know, be an ally to help people feel safe. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. So without further ado, I think we'll end it there. We really appreciate everybody listening. Get in on the conversation on Twitter at Team SPI. Tony and I are there to continue the conversation on how can you look at DEI in the sense of in your community. It's it's a big thing and let's talk about it. Yeah. I want to hear what you've learned, what you're excited about, what you want to change, what you think you might be able to change, what adjustments you might be able to make. So share it up with us and see you next Tuesday. This has been The Community Experience. For more information on this episode, including links and show notes, head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash listen. Learn more about Daniel and the great work he's doing at thecouragecollective.co. Our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Our series producers are David Grabowski and senior producer Sarah Jane Hess. Editing and sound design by Duncan Brown. Music by David Grabowski. See you next time.